American Road Trip Talk begins after this message. In western Nebraska, Sydney used to be known as the toughest town on the tracks. Today, Sydney is home to family-owned restaurants and vibrant downtown full of unique shops. Plan your trip to Sydney and learn more at visitsydneyne.com. The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to have you along for the ride. Glad to be working alongside Nathan Miller, our producer. This is American Road Trip Talk. We'll be back with the interview right after this. There's room to roam around the scenic byways in Southeast Idaho's high country. And it's a great time to get away and decompress. Did you know Southeast Idaho is hot springs country? Come and relax in natural mineral water hot pools. Then visit one of their quirky museums like the Idaho Potato Museum, the Museum of Clean, or the Butch Cassidy Museum. Go to IdahoHighCountry.org to plan your trip. You're sure to find your favorite way to disconnect when you visit Idaho. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I want to bring attention to a life-saving product called Alert Drops. Drowsy driving is one of the most catastrophic problems in America, and Alert Drops will stop it. What is Alert Drops? Alert Drops is a simple spray on the tongue made out of citric acid, sour lemon, and water. A simple spray on the tongue, nothing in your system. And you're naturally awake, naturally alert. Go to alertjobs.com. Very important. Go to alertjobs.com and stay safe. Adventure, history, and beauty all await you on the Natchez Parkway, a national scenic byway and national park. This 444-mile drive takes you through some of the country's most stunning landscapes while also allowing you access to exciting communities along the way. From Natchez, Mississippi to Nashville, Tennessee, we invite you to explore the trace and discover America. Plan your trip at scenictrace.com. That's scenictrace.com. Tell your friends about Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to American Road Trip Talk. And today we visit the Charleston Museum, Charleston, South Carolina, founded in 1773. That's before the Declaration of Independence was signed. America's first museum has been discovering, preserving, interpreting, celebrating, and sharing ever since. The collections, exhibitions, educational programs, and events are designed to inspire curiosity and conversation, especially about the South Carolina Low Country and the stories that have taken two and a half centuries to tell. Today, we're very privileged to get together with Susan McKellar, Chief of Museum Operations at the Charleston Museum. She is our guest. We're delighted to have you, Susan. Welcome to American Road Trip Talk. Thank you for having me. As best you can in about uh, 30 seconds or so, why don't you tell us about the 250 years of history <laughs> that attached <laughs> to the Charleston Museum? By the way, and I'm glad you see her on the, on the screen here being a Zoom call. Nathan is there at the board, and Suzanne Mitchell of Manson Mitchell is with us today, and her curiosity is heightened because of the few of us gathered here, she is the one who's been to Charleston, South Carolina. However, she did not get to visit the Charleston Museum. That's for she and I to do. Please give us some sense of the history of it, the staying power of that first museum in America. Well, obviously, um, the museum, when it was first founded, isn't exactly what we think of a museum today. 
Um, the first concept of the museum was to collect things around the Carolina Providence because the people here were very excited about our history, particularly our natural history in this environment. So the wealthy elites of this community, because of their wealth that they um, were making because of the enslaved people in our community, they were actually able to you know, pursue interests in, interest in both cultural and natural history pursuits. So they decided, the members of the Library Society here in Charleston decided that they wanted to form a museum. And even though it's not exactly what we think of a museum today, they still wanted to collect objects, preserve objects, and also learn from those objects. So it's very similar from what we do today as a museum as well. In looking at the website, I thought, wow, this, this is a long, long story covering the trajectory of America in many ways. And one of the reasons I bring this up is because it seems like there was a long period of time, a stretch of time in which the powers that be at the museum guiding its destiny decided that they're in South Carolina's low country, which bears some explanation in and of itself, that term, the low country, needed a window to the world. And the museum provides that. Absolutely. So after collecting things and specimens from around this area, the museum's focus changed a little bit. And, you know, we were a major port city, colonial city. So we had lots of things coming from other places, you know, Chinese export. We had furniture coming from England and clocks. Um, they also started producing silver and furniture here as well. But there were things were coming from all over the world. And the idea was to collect these things. And so that way, the people of Charleston could come and see these things for themselves, because most people did not have the ability to travel like we travel today. Understood. Uh, it may be less understood, this idea of South Carolina having a low country. But I can tell you, Susan, that Suzanne and I just last summer were able to visit the low country and get some idea of what you folks are talking about there. What is it that makes that makes the low country of South Carolina stand out as special statewide? Well, it's our marshlands here and a lot of the the low country is actually below sea level. And one of the major um products that they were producing here at the in early Charleston was rice. So the enslaved Africans coming over from Africa had all of this knowledge and um, understood the technology to produce rice here in the low country. And they were using the tidal flooding of the creeks to produce that rice. Um, later when rice becomes, you know, the agricultural system becomes, you know, using equipment and enslavement is outlawed, we just really couldn't keep up with that production as, as a whole, as a community. But there is still some rice grown in Charleston. We actually um, sell it here in our museum store. So there's, there's small crops produced, but nothing like it was when we were using enslaved labor in this community. When you're talking about the low country, it reminds me, Susan, of, you know, what is happening with our climate change. And I'm wondering if there's a lot of concern about Charleston in the same way there is about, say, New Orleans, perhaps going underwater before long. Absolutely. When we have a rough thunderstorm and if it coincides with high tide, we have major flooding in downtown Charleston. And 
Interestingly enough, if you take an early map of Charleston and lay it over a contemporary map of Charleston, the areas that typically flood used to be creeks. There's a lot of landfill area on the peninsula. So it's kind of like Mother Nature is taking back, you know, what was once hers. But yes, there's definitely a concern about, you know, um, rising tides and, and what that means for our area. In terms of the collections and the exhibits, it seems to me that being there in the low country and with such a long history, there is a sense of it being an archaeological site or certainly a repository. When I, I go to the website there, which is? Uh, yes, absolutely. Go ahead. I, and your website. I want to get the website out there early and oh, often. CharlestonMuseum.org. He just threw that at her. <laughs> Susan, you picked <laughs> it up and you ran with it. Good for you. CharlestonMuseum.org. You can buy tickets there as well, and you're going to want to do that with all they have to see. Uh, these exhibits and collections, there is an archaeological theme to a lot of it, it seems. Absolutely. Um, we have an archaeologist here on staff, and nobody in Charleston knows more about urban archaeology in Charleston. Um, so she, a lot of our collections, we have 2.4 million objects in our collections, but a lot of those are archaeology materials. So a lot of nails, bits of china, you know, um, one of the best places to do an archaeological dig is where um, uh, a privy used to be because that's where a lot of people were throwing their garbage. And so there's wonderful resources coming out of that animal bones. So we know what people were eating. Um, you have bits of china. We even find little bones that we think were probably pets like parrots and guinea pigs and things like that. So you can learn a lot from what was once trash. Is that location fairly close to the museum and is it still active right now? It, it hasn't been turned into a, a hotel or something else? Um, well, some of our locations are still active. Our wildlife sanctuary located on James Island, we can continue to do research out there. But you're right, because of development, oftentimes archaeological sites are under threat. But luckily here in Charleston as a community, we really do preserve our history. And so when something is unearthed, they usually do call in an archaeologist to come and look at that. How many bits do you have? How many items do you have? You say a couple of million? We have 2.4 million objects in our collection. A source of pride, no doubt. Susan, you are the chief of museum operations. Let me give you just this bit of free advice. Be sure to delegate on inventory day. <laughs> yeah, it's a complicated process, ongoing always here at the museum. Incredible. I'm thinking of the various things. I want to get so much in in this short amount of time. You have a collection. It's stunning. When I looked at it, you just go to the website and you see these pictures and you go, oh, my goodness, how could they get all this there in, in Charleston with so much else to see? You have something called the Armory, and it looks like an amazing collection, which itself tracks the history in North America of guns and I believe even swords all the way through World War II. Yes, yeah. We're we're fortunate because, you know, we've been collecting for such a long period of time that our collecting here history goes along with Charleston's history and our history as a nation. So it's we've been really fortunate to receive so many wonderful donations from the people in our community. 
when it comes to exhibits, let, let's get to as many of them as we can. And I'd like to look at it in terms of historical periods. What is represented at the museum concerning Charleston, South Carolina, and the Revolutionary War, for example? Absolutely. We have permanent exhibits on Native Americans, the colonial pe period, um, enslavement. Um, we go through the armory, armory, so we have weaponry. Um, we have a whole exhibit on the Revolutionary War and Charleston's impact in that. You know, a lot of times people think of the North more when they're thinking about the Revolutionary War, but the South was a huge part of that as well. And then we also have our Civil War period, which is on um, permanent exhibit as well. And then following that, we have a space that we're going to be working on next year for our permanent exhibit, which is going to be reconstruction up through civil rights in Charleston. And then we also have our Natural History Gallery, which focuses on not only contemporary animals here in Charleston, but also prehistoric animals that were here in Charleston. And at one time, Charleston was underwater and our capital, Columbia, was actually the coastline. So we have a lot of prehistoric whale fossils that are here to be researched by scientific experts. I noticed on your website that as far as a museum goes, you're not singularly focused. You have multiple foci with regard to the Natural History Museum, the, the history, the archaeology. You cover quite a number of areas, almost like a little bit of something for everybody, even, even a kid's museum. Yes, yeah. That's one of the great things about the Charleston Museum. A whole family can come here and everybody is going to find something that they're interested in because our collection is so diverse from textiles to weaponry, you know, to natural history fossils. There really is something for everybody here at the Charleston Museum. And often, you know, we get to hear wonderful things when people are leaving the museum and they often tell us it's the best museum they've ever been to. I can well imagine, you know, Suzanne just uh, got me thinking here a moment ago. And by the way, Suzanne Mitchell is a very bright lady, and she will find just about any excuse to use the word foci in a sentence. So that got, that got me thinking about the different collections and exhibits you have. And let's set that up, Susan, in terms of permanent exhibits, and I'm sure they change throughout the years. We're going to focus on this this year and then the other foci another year. How is it that you determine permanent collections from the ones that are current but may give way to new ones coming in? Um, well, actually, that's more of a curatorial team um, question. You know, I leave that all of that up to the curatorial team. But our, textile, our historic textile gallery is the gallery that rotates the most because historic textiles can only be on exhibit if they're in excellent condition for about six months. And it depends on the condition of the textile, how long it can be on exhibit. For example, this year for our 250th um, anniversary, we exhibited Eliza Lucas Pinckney's gown. It's a robe a la Francaise. And it's very delicate. Colonial period clothes are very rare. It's silk and silk shatters. So it can really only be out for a limited period of time. And it needs to be, we can't even actually hang this garment on a mannequin anymore. It has to be displayed flat in order to keep its condition um, for the remaining generations that come behind us. Um, 
you know, and so that gown, I think it was out for about, it was out for about a month and a half, I believe. Uh, it just um, went back into storage and it won't be coming out again for quite some time. I would think that the same as is true of ancient parchment, for example, ancient ancient documents, that you need to be very careful about light exposure, including sunlight. It just has that effect. You have to be aware of what the elements can do. And even in an enclosure, that is the case, it seems. That is very true. In part one of our 250th anniversary, we exhibited the first volume of an original Audubon book. And routinely, the archivist had to flip pages because even, you know, the special lighting in the gallery that is temperature controlled can damage those pages. So you don't want any um, archival material exposed to, to light for an extended period of time. I wanted to circle back. In fact, you definitely caught Suzanne's ear with this. I remember being a kid, and for me, there were two things of interest to me other than sports when I was growing up, astronauts and dinosaurs. It was one or the other. You know, it occupied a lot of my free time thinking and reading about dinosaurs and, and uh, in terms of space and then prehistoric times. How is that, the prehistoric times, how are they represented at the Charleston Museum? Because I know that you've got Many things there that were in representations of whether models or fossils or both, they would be just tremendously exciting to families with children. Absolutely. So our Bunting Natural History Gallery, it kind of takes you through geologic time in the beginning and explains how the coastline changed here in Charleston and kind of guides you through all the different animals that um, were here in Charleston over time all the way up through the Ice Age and contemporary animals. And one of the most exciting things in that exhibit gallery is Pelagornis sandersi. This is the only fossil in the world. We have the only one of the world's largest known flying bird. It's really an exciting thing to see. And we have um, a YouTube video, if your listeners are interested in learning more about it, that they can go and view and learn more about this very special specimen that we have the only one. If this is the largest flying bird ever anywhere, about how large is the wingspan on it? Ooh, <laughs> I don't remember its actual wingspan, but it's, um, you know, if you hold your arms out underneath it, it extends beyond you several feet. Um, and it wasn't the type of bird that was actually flapping its wings. They think that it was sort of gliding, kind of like, um, you know, parasailing. It was using the wind. Um, and that's when the coastline was much windier here. And they suspect maybe due to climate change that the winds died down and therefore the bird could no longer get out over the water to hunt for its food. Would that have been during the dinosaur age, the largest flying bird? It kind of, you know, again, that's more of a natural history curator oh, question, sorry. but um, <laughs> that's okay. It it it's around, you know, it's I it's after the dinosaurs, I believe. Okay. Um, yeah, right before Ice Age. Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah, the whole place is so fascinating in terms of natural history. 
this is going to occupy a lot of people's time, the visitors. I'm quite certain that happens. In terms of think, for example, Suzanne and I live not too far away. We live in Florida and Sarasota, but not far away. We have beaches where they are famous for not just the wonderful sand and the lovely water, but also you can pick up shark's teeth, actual fossils. How many people do you know turn it into jewelry? I've seen it. And there it is. So what do you have represented at the Charleston Museum from that period? I'm talking about big shark's teeth. So you're talking about the megalodon, probably. Um, yes. We actually, that, that is a focus of our Bunting Natural History Gallery. We have several teeth on exhibit. And then we also have a cast of the megalodon jaws. So kids can really see how big it was. And they're open. They're kind of coming at you. We often see families taking pictures inside <laughs> of it. It's really quite fun. But yeah, children get really excited about the Megalodon here. And we're always excited for them. And when you're done looking at dinosaurs and the various fossils, you might want to see Egyptian mummification, an example of that, the antiquities. I was surprised when I saw that it was South Carolina and something that looks like a pharaoh and a mummified woman. How did that get there? Well, that was part of the early days of the Charleston Museum when they were collecting things from around the world. Um, so we have our Egyptian mummified woman that, in that gallery and some Roman artifacts, some early hand axes. And one of my favorite objects in the museum, and it's one of the earliest objects from our collection, it's a grass helmet from the Sandwich Islands, which is now Hawaii. And it's just really, it's quite magnificent. I love all of this stuff. Now, in terms of the museum itself and some satellite buildings, maybe walk us through a little bit of that, Susan, because it seems like there are a couple of houses. Are those special exhibits where you buy a separate ticket and tour the homes? Yes. Um, the Joseph Manigo House is conveniently located right across the street from the museum. And then we also own the Hayward Washington House, on 87 Church Street in Charleston. It's about 13 blocks away from the museum. But that house is um, really exciting because that is where uh, Thomas Hayward was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And it's also where George Washington stayed during his tour of the Southern States. In fact, I believe, is there a, an inauguration button on site for George Washington, who became there president is. by acclamation, but nevertheless, he had a button. Yes. Yeah. And we also have his christening cup as well. Seriously. Wow. This is some amazing stuff. And I for those uh, who are interested in period costumes, you even have the uh, the dress where you were mentioning that earlier. This is a, a separate exhibit where the costumes are there. This is what people of the low country wore. So it's a tableau of the way people dressed, especially if you had money. Absolutely. Yeah. Oftentimes when it comes to textile collections, you you have um, the best things preserved, you know, the the most expensive clothes, the things that you maybe didn't wear that often. However, also in our textile collection, we do have two aprons that were worn by enslaved women. Well, actually, one woman probably and a child. So, and those are very rare objects to have because those things typically weren't cared for, weren't appreciated, and weren't saved. Mm. 
it's that time in the interview in the last minute or so we have susan please tell people where you are in charleston where you are near what are the the landmarks and the monuments nearby so people can really make a tour of the town never forgetting that there is a 250 year old museum right there uh, the heart of the action and how about accommodations places to stay places to eat so we're conveniently located kind of in the midsection of the peninsula we're at 360 Meeting Street. We're located right across the street from the Charleston Visitor Center. Um, we take up a whole block right across from them. There are several hotels in our area, um, a little north of us and even some south. So there's plenty of places to stay nearby to take advantage of the Charleston Museum. Wonderful. And once again, your website, so everybody can make sure they write it down and go there as soon as the show's over. It is charlestonmuseum.org. Beautiful. Susan McKellar, Chief of Museum Operations. You took time out of your busy Friday, and thank goodness, thank goodness it is Friday, just about the weekend for you. Hopefully you're not working, but you've given us <laughs> a lot to think about, and I certainly look forward to getting to Charleston for the first time, and I would like to shake your hand when we get there. Thanks so much, and Absolutely. well done with 250 years of success. You deserve to take a bow for you and all your forebears. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning into American Road Trip Talk, along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue. Until next time, dream well and drive safely on the American Road. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure.